Chapter Two of Bielehild by Julie Sutter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Gieselhar of the Arch. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Daniel ten thirteen. The abbot bishop of Würzburg. But what is an abbot bishop? We have introduced the reader to unknown regions and cannot proceed without explanation. Coleman at Hushheim and David at Würzburg, also Killian, their predecessor, were called abbots, abbas, that is, father, each being the guide of one of those missionary bands, consisting of twelve brethren and their families, who left Ireland in order to found settlements in Germany for the conversion of the heathen inhabitants. But David, the abbot of his own Irish brethren, was also the bishop that is, pastor or shepherd, of the German converts gathering round the settlement. The terms abbot and bishop should not mislead the reader. The ancient churches of Ireland and Scotland had little or nothing in common with the Roman Catholics of later times. Britain had been blessed with the gospel as early as the third century, in the time of the Constantine persecution. A church had sprung up, and of the fervent men it produced, the two, perhaps, who did most for its development on the apostolic foundation, as well as for the spreading of the truth beyond their own land, were Ninian and Patrick in the early part of the fifth century. To the untiring missionary zeal of these men of God, the German people in a great measure owe their conversion to Christianity. This Irish-Scottish church did not practice celibacy. Its ministers, called presbyters, which name later on grew into the appellation priest, as well as those who, as abbots, presided over a missionary settlement, and the brethren who had gone out as co-messengers with the abbot, were, as a rule, married men. The priests of the Irish Church considered it lawful to marry as late as the twelfth and thirteenth century, and knew no difference between secular clergy and monks. Those who, as Killian, for instance, and his fellow messengers, went forth to the heathen, called themselves monachi, that is, men of solitude, not because they were without their lawfully wedded wives or shut up in monasteries, but because they lived separated from their own church among the heathen. Their families had gone out with them and their solitude consisted of separate cabins, one for each family, round the place of worship and a common refectory. They were, moreover, in constant intercourse with the world around them, travelling to and fro in the prosecution of their missionary labours. When a congregation had been formed of the converts, the abbot either himself was its bishop, that is, pastor, or he appointed one of his brethren to the office, in which case the bishop was subordinate to the abbot, who continued as chief guide of the settlement. All these abbots in their turn had a spiritual head in the abbot of Iona, the ancient island church on the west coast of Scotland. Such a mission station was called a cenobie, that is, a place where persons live in community, but never a cloister or monastery. Records are extant, giving trustworthy information concerning these Irish mission settlements, or cenobies. Their center was always the church or oratory. What these were like may be seen from specimens which have survived, as for instance at Devonish, and Clondalkin, near Dublin, and another on the Flannan Isles. Note, at Altenfurt, near Nuremberg, is another, erected in the twelfth century by Scottish mission monks. Such an oratory consisted of a round massive stone tower terminating in a high cupola. A circular niche opening out from the central nave contained the simple communion table. The cupola served as a belfry. Each of the brethren took share in the gospel work and their wives were occupied in teaching, besides their own children, such of the heathen as could be gathered into schools. It would for this reason have been inconvenient if each wife had had the duty of housekeeping besides, 
The common refectory obviated this necessity, the simple meal consisting chiefly of vegetables, fish, or occasionally game. Among the twelve brethren were generally some not ordained to the sacred work, but who, as serving brethren, with the help of the growing youths or some of the converts, provided for the temporal needs, cultivating the fields, tending the cattle, cutting down trees for fuel, and the like. An island, either on a lake or between the arms of some river, was a much favored site, affording protection against the sudden attack of hostile heathen, but where such could not be found the mission station was surrounded by a ring fence. The converts usually settled round the Cenobi, gradually forming new congregations. Those among them who were found fit were trained for the ministry or presbytership, in order to assist or, as the case might be, replace the original twelve brethren, or to be sent out that new Cenobis might be founded. Some of these Cenobis grew to be towns, Würzburg on the main, for instance, as Hammelburg and Arnstadt in Germany, St. Gall and Glarus in Switzerland, owe their existence to those Irish founders. Strasbourg and Salzburg also are indebted to them. Divine service was conducted in the simplicity of the ancient church. There were no priestly vestments, no saint-worship, no images, the language used always that of the converted people, the great aim being to diffuse the knowledge of the Bible. In keeping with their mission work, and moreover according to the practice of the early church, was their habit of baptizing their own children, like those of heathen parents, not till after they had been instructed in the Christian faith. Thus Belihilt had completed her seventeenth year when she was deemed prepared for baptism on Easter Day, the 8th of April, 703. On Easter Eve, when Abbot Bishop David gathered the candidates about him to impress them once more with the sacred import of the intended act, his voice had a tremulous tenderness, and he concluded with these words, Be not slothful in your part, examining yourselves earnestly and humbly praying for the grace of the Spirit that the Lord may find you well prepared, if it be his holy will that we should carry out what we have set before us. Be it according to his will. Most of the candidates did not understand why he should have added an if. What should prevent their being baptized? Only one of the young Christians knew the abbot's meaning, a youth of the Herzog's household, named Heimerisch, for it had been he who had whispered news to the abbot which had filled the latter with the gravest apprehension. Something has happened to the Herzog, said Heimerisch. He was found senseless in his chamber. One of the serving-women told us that, as she was setting supper in the hall, the Herzogin had suddenly risen from her seat, following a man-at-arms to the bedchamber. That much is certain, that almost directly afterwards Pillen was dispatched to call home our young Lord Hayden, who was away hunting the wild boar. I happened to stand by the door when the Herzogin passed, and she looked at me with terrible eyes. But our brother, the noble Giselhar, charged me to tell you that he intended to be with you speedily. The news was soon to be corroborated. As the Herzog was taking off his armor of buffalo-hide, he was seized with apoplexy. His frightened attendant hastened to call the Herzogin, who sat weaving with her women. They laid Gottsbert upon the bed. The right side was paralyzed, and the power of speaking gone. Vainly he tried to express his desire that the abbot should be sent for to pray with him. Gyla knew well enough what he meant, but instead of sending for the abbot she sent for the priest of Bol, a divinity which was supposed to reside in a grove close by. The abbot, though unbidden, had no sooner parted with his young charges than he directed his steps to the burg, to attend to the Herzog's spiritual need, but reaching the entrance gate he met the priest arriving from the other side with a handful of holy grasses, and with him Hetzilo, the chief priest of Woden, followed by a boy leading a goat destined to be sacrificed. The heathen priests were admitted, whereas the abbot was refused entrance. The Herzog was asleep, he was told, and could not be disturbed. With a heavy heart the aged servant of Christ had descended the hill, and called together the brethren to prayer. They were on their knees in the oratory, 
and so absorbed in prayer that a young man entered unnoticed. He had a noble, warlike figure, tall and stately. His eyes were blue, his fair hair long and curly. His powdered breast was coated with the usual armor of padded buffalo skin, the legs being cased in greaves of hard leather, while spurs of bronze were fixed to his boots. A heavy iron sword and a wooden sheath completed his accoutrements. His helmet of buffalo hide was adorned with three heron's feathers. He had entered softly and knelt down, joining in the abbot's prayers. The brethren did not notice him till his loud amen mingled with theirs, when the abbot turned to him, almost precipitately, taking him by the hand and saying, "'Gieselhar, what news?' "'Bad news,' answered the young man. "'That our God-fearing Herzog has had a stroke thou knowest already, and the pagan priests, speedily sent for by the Herzogine Gaila, thou hast seen with thine own eyes. I also saw them from the guest-chamber as they entered the inner court by the light of torches, and I saw that Gaila herself led Hetzilo to the dining-hall. I was deeply grieved that this servant of darkness should trouble the dying man with his abominations, and followed him on the spot. The Herzogin shot a wrathful glance at me when I entered. She had already brought him to the door of the bedchamber, but I would not be deterred. Lady, said I, what are you about? The Herzog is a Christian, and while he lives his will is paramount, and not another's, not yours, and that it cannot be his will to have his dying hour polluted with devil's work you know full well. Away, thou servant of the evil one, get thee gone to thine own wicked altar. We care not how many goats and boars thou killest there, but thou shalt not hinder the Herzog departing in peace to his lord and master. With these words I took the leering coward by the neck and turned him from the house. Thou hast dared much, said the abbot. Gila's wrath will be upon thee when the Herzog is gone. He is gone, continued Gieselhar. His soul fled while I knelt with him, praying. As for the Herzogin, I fear her not. She is not ruler of the land, but her son Hayden. Her influence with Hayden is great, replied the abbot. Were it not so, Hayden would have come to be baptized long ago. I know, said Gieselhar, and if she had her way, your work among the Thuringians would soon be stopped. But I have taken care of that. Seeing the Herzog had not long to live, I called three Christian and three heathen freemen to his bedside, addressing him in their presence and in the hearing of his wife. Herzog Gottsberg, I said, if it be that you understand my words, and in proof that your reason has not left you, lift up your left hand and place it upon this cross. Whereupon his left hand took hold of the cross I held before him, his right hand being powerless. Again I asked, Is it your dying will that Hayden your son shall be Herzog after you? Then testify to it by once more putting your hand upon the cross. He did so. I continued, If it be your last will and command that your son Hayden, as lord of the land when you are gone, shall leave the men of God to continue their holy work in peace, hindering or troubling them nowise, I ask you for a third time to take hold of the cross, and if you are able, confirm your desire with a yes. And behold, the power of God so moved him that with both hands he seized the cross, and with clear voice spoke an unmistakable yes. Thereupon I charged the witnesses, making the three Christian men swear by the cross and the three heathen by their god Woden, that they would testify to what they had now seen and heard, and that they would stand by their testimony before the new Herzog and all the people to the end of their lives. Having thus put them to the oath, I brought them away with me to my own guest-chamber, that by the right of hospitality I might protect them from the evil woman until Hayden should return. "'The Lord bless thee for what thou hast done,' said the abbot, "'but I tremble for thy life.' "'Have no fears for me, father,' replied Gieselhar. "'I am no Thuringian, and owe them no allegiance. I am a free chieftain of the Bemer Vault, and I have come hither, as thou knowest, representing the free lords of the forest in the common cause against the Chawari. Gaila knows she dare not harm me, and if she should yet venture she would have to answer for it to the Herzogs of Bavaria, who are our true allies and Christian lords withal. As much as the Regensburg, the grand old Roman fastness, out-towers this poor little Würzburg, so much also the power of Teudo and his sons outshines the power of Hayden. 
for they own the land far beyond the Danube, from the Fichtelburg in the north to the springs of the Isar and the Salzacha in the south. Note on Regensburg. Modern Regensburg. Radisbon. And thou gloriest in thy allegiance to Toido, said the abbot. Allegiance, returned Giselar, almost angrily. Have I not told thee I am a free lord on my own land in the forest? On the high arches built the house of my fathers, looking proudly upon the valley. If an enemy threatens the land, and the herzog calls upon the free men to join in defence, then I too follow the call, but allegiance I owe him none. Thou owest thanks to the enemy, then, for having given the occasion to go to Regensburg, where thou madest the acquaintance of the holy man Rupert, who brought thee the knowledge of God. I do. It was five years ago, when we joined arms against the Chawari. You know that Rupert is no Scotchman. He is a Frank by birth. Worms on the Rhine is his home. He was a pupil at the Cenobi which our Scottish brethren founded at Worms. It is just about seven years now since he went out from them with twelve fellow messengers to continue the work which Abbot Bishop Erhard had begun at Regensburg some twenty years before. The venerable abbot was thus conversing with the noble youth when the notes of a buffalo horn sounded powerfully from the top of the mount. "'It is the watchman's notice that Hayden has arrived,' cried Giselhar. "'Let me return quickly, lest the Herzogin circumvent my precaution.' Hayden, having reached the inner court, leapt from his foaming charger, and forthwith entered the great hall, which, together with the retiring chamber already mentioned, formed the central part of the Würzburg. The dismal glow of a torchlight but half dispelled the darkness of the place, the ceiling and wainscoting of which were as black as untold years of smoke could make them. Hayden's looks went searching for his mother. He scarcely recognized the motionless figure which, on a low seat by the idle loom, sat staring into vacancy, paying no heed to his arrival. "'How goes it with my father?' cried Hayden. The figure rose noiselessly, and gliding before him, opened the door to the chamber of death. "'He is gone!' cried Hayden, with fearful emotion. "'He is dead,' reiterated his mother, with icy coldness, "'and thou art the Herzog, but another has forestalled thy orders.' "'Who has dared it?' exclaimed the young ruler, with rising passion. "'Who dared disregard my power?' "'Thy hands have been tied,' said Gila bitterly. "'Giselhar of the Arch took it upon himself to mark out the way thou shouldst go.' "'He dared it!' cried Hayden wrathfully. "'Who is he to play the Lord here? He shall answer me with the sword.' "'Listen to me first. He has made sure of six witnesses, who will swear to thee, three of them by Vodin, and three by the crucified one they call their God, that thy father just before his death had raised his hand in affirmation, when Giselhar asked him whether it was his last will and command to thee to let these strangers continue their work unscathed. For Giselhar, in putting the question to him, told him to do so. He understood that much, but the purport of the question was beyond him, I say. "'And what else is of Giselhar's ordering?' asked Hayden frowningly. "'What else? Is that not enough?' returned his mother. "'Well, he is a Christian,' said Hayden. He could not but try to prevent any harm that might befall these men of God. "'He has dared to order people about here as though he were master,' continued Gila. "'He introduced these six retainers into the retiring chamber, which hitherto has been sacred to any foot save thy father's and mine.' and not satisfied with this, he shut them up in the guest-chamber where they are at this moment. As for me, he kept me away from my dying husband. It was he who received his last breath, not I. But there he is himself, I hear him coming, and his six witnesses with him. Take heed, Hayden, to receive him with due reverence, he will expect it of thee." Giselhar entered, the six retainers following. "'Go about your business till I require your attendance,' said Hayden sharply to the latter. Then turning to his guest, he added coldly, you might have spared yourself the trouble, Sir Giselhar. That it was my father's desire to leave the Hibernians unmolested, I know full well, without your witnesses." "'Quite so,' interrupted Giselhar. 
He affirmed this his last will and command by lifting both hands, and by a clear yes. I am convinced, noble Herzog, you will honor his dying will, and act upon it. Just so, said Hayden. I will honor his will no more or less than he honored his father's last desire. Did not his dying father bid him to remain faithful to our gods? And did he act upon it? Since when, Sir Giselhar, is it meet that the dying Herzog should prescribe for the heir of his power? If it is my pleasure to persecute the strangers and destroy their worship, you will not hinder it by your six witnesses. It is not my pleasure. I desire rather to leave them in peace, not because my father has thus enjoined me, but because I consider it well and prudent. If you had kept yourself from interference, I would not have hurt a hair of their heads. But because you have presumed to play the lord here, administering oaths to my retainers, introducing them into my mother's very bedchamber, I will let you and them find out who is master here. Conrad, he said, turning to one of his men, Go down to the abbot forthwith, and charge him to have no bell-ringing, no psalm-singing, no worship of any kind for a month to come, because of my father's death. I'll just see if they will not obey me as their lord, and tell him it is my intention to take charge myself of my father's obsequies in the forest. We shall not require their assistance. As for you, Sir Giselhar of the Arch, I might well turn you from my board for having abused of hospitality. I will not do it. For the sake of Herzog Teudo, who has sent you, you may stay as long as you please." "'I shall not please to make further use of your hospitality, most noble Herzog,' said Giselar proudly. "'Nor was it my intention to tie your hands, but rather to free them.' He stepped from the hall, ordered his men to saddle the horses, and rode off. Day was breaking. As he reached the Cenobi he found the little colony in great consternation. Conrad had just delivered his message. "'We cannot obey this injunction,' exclaimed several of the younger brethren. "'It is the will of God that we worship him this Easter day, and we should obey God rather than men.' See that ye mistake not his will, said the abbot. It is written nowhere in his word that we should ring the Easter bell. When St. Paul was a prisoner at Rome, he did not keep the days of unleavened bread with the brethren. He did not say, It is the will of God I should, let me burst from my prison and keep Easter time, but he worshipped the Lord in bonds. Thus ye also are his prisoners now, not shut in and fettered, but shut out from your oratory. Go then to your cabins and worship him in silence, I and in tears, if perchance the Lord will turn the heart of the new Herzog, and give him thoughts of peace toward us. And indeed it is by humble obedience that we shall gain most. If we defy this grievous command, the work will suffer." Giselhar shared this opinion, and the brethren resolved to obey Hayden's behest. Bilahild and the rest of the candidates, therefore, could not be baptized for another month, if then. When Bilahild learned this, she said sadly, "'Could I but go to my mother? Brother Hedo has just brought me word from Husheim that she is sick unto death and not likely to live another day." The abbot, hearing this, was anxious she should go, but knew of no safeguard to escort her. "'I do,' rejoined Giselhar, "'all the more as it is my intention not to leave the country without bidding farewell to our brethren at Husheim. If the maiden will trust herself to me, I will take her thither in safety.' A saddle-horse being provided for her, the maiden set out with Giselhar, followed by his two servants, old Trudpert and curly-headed Dado. The rising sun had crowned the hills with a purple glory but Bilihild's tearful eyes sought the ground. She thought of her mother, and the world was dark to her. She was glad to see her once more, but the sorrow of this last meeting far outweighed any joy. It was a disappointment to her also to return unbaptized. She rode along in mournful silence, and Giselhar, whose eyes could not but be charmed with his lovely charge, dared not disturb her grief. His two servants, however, to while away the time, presently fell into a loud conversation, beginning to tell each other mysterious tales of the various divinities worshipped by their neighbours, of Woden among others. Giselhar, hearing it, turned round. Trudbert, he said reprovingly, how often have I told thee not to speak thus lightly of the devil?' "'Is Woden the devil?' asked Bilihild. 
Giselhar was taken by surprise, but said after a while, I met a priest one day who had come from beyond the Alps, and he assured me the best means of making the people turn against their heathen gods was to tell them these were just the devil and his angels who war against the kingdom of light. It seemed to me good counsel. But it is not true, said the maiden. It cannot be right to say what is not true. Does not St. Paul tell us the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to devils? He also says that an idol is nothing. Judge for thyself, is there a Voden? Certainly not. But there is a prince of darkness, the chief of fallen angels. We know it is deception to tell men there is a Voden. Worshipping him also is deception, which pleases him who is the father of lies. But if thou tellest thy servant, Voden himself is the father of lies and the prince of darkness, thou mayest be guilty of great wrong. For hitherto he has thought of Voden as of an old man with a beard of lichen, riding on a white horse and sometimes on the wind, chasing his faithless wife and he will be likely to turn the adversary of Christ Jesus into just such a silly spectre. And if the men of God tell him, There is no Voden, and thou addest, Voden is the devil, how should he not come to imagine the teaching of the Scriptures no better than the heathen tales of Voden and the like? "'Thou art right,' exclaimed Giselhar, looking at his companion with undisguised surprise. To tell the truth he had taken little notice of her so far, that she was fair to behold he could not but see, but beyond this he saw in her merely a maiden entrusted to his care, and one greatly beneath him in position. Now, to his astonishment, he found her a woman to be listened to. Her sad face lit up as she spoke, a wondrous light breaking from her eyes. She was indeed beautiful to behold. He could not but own the majestic loveliness of her whole bearing. "'Father David has told me,' she continued, "'that these transalpine priests are teaching a strange mixture of truth and falsehood, bewildering the people in Britain, whither they have taken the gospel.' In order to gain the heathen in greater masses, they allow them to keep some of their pagan conceits, changing the names perhaps, but condoning the practices. Instead of praying to God on the holy days, as Christian people have done since the Church's earliest time, they call upon saints and martyrs themselves, asking for their intercession in our behalf. Instead of idols they have saints now, offering them worship in heathen fashion. The name only has changed, idolatry has remained, and the latter abomination is greater than the former because it pretends to be Christian. The very sacrifices have remained under the guise of Christian festivals. Our men of God who hate such a mixing of heathen practice and Christian teaching, who are not satisfied with what is half and half, and will not admit a man to baptism unless he has truly repented himself of his sins, and turned to the Lord with a whole heart, have much to suffer from these priests of the Romish church. They affect to despise our abbots and bishops, because like the apostles they live in holy wedlock the bishop of Rome himself insisting on what is nowhere taught in the Bible, as though it were a sin in a minister of the church to have a wife. "'What a foolish craze!' exclaimed Giselhar. "'To be sure,' continued he, but stopped short. "'To be sure,' he was going to say, "'if marriage were interdicted in our Irish Cenobies also, one need not fear lest one of the brethren should take a maiden to wife who might well delight a man's heart, and whom I would fain gain for myself.' But he considered that Billahild was on the way to her mother's deathbed, and suppressed the thought. Yet knowing he might possibly not meet her again for a long time, he could not help letting her see indirectly what he dared not put into clearer words. "'The men of God,' he said after a while, "'are not forbidden, I believe, to look for a wife beyond their own Cenobi.' "'Oh, no,' replied Billahilt. "'They may marry whom they please, only of course not heathen girls. Their wives must be true, zealous, and humble-minded Christians.' Brother Hookbalt, for instance, has married one of our converts, and found in her a God-fearing wife and a faithful helpmeet in his holy vocation. "'And I suppose,' said Giselar, "'the men of God would not necessarily expect their daughters to wed a brother within the Cenobi, 
but one of them might follow a Christian husband to his home beyond, if she were so minded. Indeed, I remember, he added, that only last year a daughter of our venerable abbot Rupert at Regensburg married a Bavarian husband of Herzog Teudo's household. If we might suppose now that sooner or later a free man, whose home is neither at Hushheim nor at Würzburg, should turn hither the steps of his charger, hoping to gain Billehild for his wife, and if she were not loath to accept him, there would be no reason why the two should not be joined in happy wedlock. But, he continued, as the maiden blushingly averted her face, this is no time for such fancies. It is not lover's music, but sounds of mourning which ring in thine ear. I pray the Lord in his mercy to spare thy mother, to grant her the joy of assisting at thy baptism, and to grant me the happiness of knowing the mother of such a daughter. Let it be according to his will, said Billahilt gently, the tears falling from her eyes. Giselhar was silent. His secret thought turned to fervent prayer. If that prayer could be heard, Billahilt's mother would be brought back from the gates of death and he would not hide from her the wish of his heart. She herself should gain him the daughter's acceptance, and the mother's hand would bless him who in future would be her son, and the rightful protector of her darling child. As his thoughts were thus running on apace, the woodland opened out before them. Another turn, and Hushheim lay open to their view. Giselhar felt his heart beat, but poor Bielehilz was ready to stand still. The solemn notes of the communion hymn rose from the oratory, carried on the wings of the wind. The gate of the ring-fence was closed, and not unguarded, but the watchman knew the approaching maiden, and opened without delay. "'It is well thou art come,' he said. "'Thy mother is at the point of death.'" End of chapter 2